Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 this morning. Luke chapter 8, our text is from verse 26 down to verse 39. This morning from Luke chapter 8, I want to speak to you about the subject of deliverance. But not just deliverance in general, I want to speak to you about the subject of deliverance under the title, Deliverance That Exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. By now you've turned to Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. I'm reading from the New American Standard. This is the Word of God. Then they sailed to the country of the Garrisons, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came, that is Jesus, out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had, that is Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission, verse 33. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported it to them, how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, that is Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house, and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. That's the word of God. Deliverance is one of the greatest subjects found in the Bible from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22.17. And yet the typical response of many unbelievers when the subject of deliverance or salvation, this is the same word in, in the Bible, when deliverance is raised, the typical response is, I'm okay and you're okay. It's all right. You can participate. This is, I'm not going to ask you to participate much. That's it. <laughs> okay. I'm okay and you're okay. Uh, most people who really need Jesus' deliverance do not initially see themselves or see their need for deliverance. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone who doesn't yet know 
the grace of God that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And they just look at you and say, you're saying I need to be saved? Why is it that most unbelievers don't initially uh, see any need for deliverance? It's, it's because sin blinds us. Sin blinds every unbeliever. It, bli- it blinds every uh, unbeliever so that they don't see themselves as God sees them. I, you might say it, they don't see themselves as they really are. How would you describe yourself spiritually without the saving grace and mercy of God? I want you to think about that. The key point that the scriptures are going to make this, this morning is that without the saving grace and mercy of God, we are all bound in chains of gloomy darkness and powerless to deliver ourselves. Yes, this passage is not about you, and this passage is not about me, but it certainly applies to you and me. And certainly, God has his purposes of exalting Jesus Christ in this passage. And I want you to stop thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to, and be looking at yourself the way God sees you as you are spiritually. Now, I'm wearing a a suit and tie, and many of you are well-groomed, and you look beautiful on the outside. But see, that's just it, isn't it? Man looks on the outward appearance and God's looking on the heart. He sees you as you really are on the inside. And I want you to be helped with God's word uh, today by looking at this passage of scripture, not only to see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ today as the great deliverer, but to get a clearer picture of who you are before God's presence Here in Luke 8, 26 through 39, Jesus is going to show his power over the forces of darkness. In the previous passage, verse 22 uh, to uh, to 25, Jesus has just demonstrated his power over the forces of nature by calming the troubled sea. So much so, so powerfully so, that the disciples said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? The disciples don't yet know who Jesus really is. But he's going to help them understand a little bit better who he is in this next passage, our passage today, when he not only displays his power over the forces of nature, but his power over the forces of darkness. And Jesus displays his power over the forces of darkness by delivering a man who is completely and totally in the grip and power of demonic darkness. There are two lessons about deliverance that I'd like for us to consider this morning. So if you're taking notes, and I recommend that that you do, as Abraham Lincoln once said, a short pencil will go a lot further than a long mind. Write it down. If you disagree, come, talk. Let's have a discussion. Let's see what God's word has to say. But nonetheless, so you can go away and consider what you've heard. Two lessons about deliverance that result in the exaltation of Jesus Christ so that you will look to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, for your deliverance, and so that all of you who have already been saved by the amazing grace of God will make Jesus famous among the nations. As Malachi said, uh, as the Lord said through Malachi, that from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name, the Lord's name, will be great among the nations. And if you've been delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your remit, that is your responsibility. You cannot hire a missionary to do the work that God has called you to do in saving you. You cannot 
have your elders or your pastors do the work that God has called you to do by saving you. And I contend in advance to you that everyone God has saved, he has saved, according to Ephesians 2.10, for his own purposes. He has a work beforehand uh, prepared for us that we should do it. And that is partly making his name known among the nations. Well, the first lesson to learn about deliverance is very simple. There's a need for it. There's a need for deliverance. Yes, in 2022, there's a need for deliverance. We find this This is a good summary of verses 27 through 33. And so we ask, how can we be so sure that this man in in Luke 8 really needs Jesus' deliverance? And I think that there are two details about this man in verses 27 through 33 that prove this man needs deliverance. The man's description proves he needs deliverance. And secondly, the man's recognition of Jesus proves this man needs deliverance. Let's take a look at the man's description. The the incidental detail about his local origin in verse 27 is that he's a man from the city, and you might quickly just read over that as an incidental and say, well, that's great, he's a a city slicker, Uh, he's, uh, he's not from the suburbs, he's not from the country, but verse 34 and verse 39 later in this passage are going to Uh, emphasize the importance of this initial uh, uh, observation that he's from the city. Notice his spiritual condition is described in verse 27 as a man who was demon-possessed or a man who had demons. His physical condition also described in verse 27 is that he wore no clothes. His current residence is also given in verse 27. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And his length of captivity to darkness, which is only found in Luke's gospel, not Matthew and Mark's parallel account, Luke tells us that it's been a long time. Now, this expression for a long time in verse 27 can easily govern all four of these things in verse, uh, in verse 27. It, for a long time tells us he was possess- how long he was possessed by demons. For a long time tells us how long it's been that he wore no clothes. For a long time tells us how long it'd been that he had not lived in a house. And for a long time, and for a long time tells us how long he lived among the tombs. I contend in advance to you that this man's description alone tells us that this man needs deliverance. But there's a second detail that proves this man needs deliverance. And it's found in verse 28. And you might put it under this head. It's the man's recognition of Jesus. This proves that this man needs deliverance. You see, without an introduction, the man knew Jesus' name. That's a bit odd. I met some of you this morning, but I didn't say, oh, you must be Kara, you must be Daniel, you must be Desmond. No, they each had to introduce themselves and tell, and tell me their name. And then again, I'm, I'm not the Lord, so I don't know everyone's name. Without an introduction, the man knew Jesus' name. No one introduced him to Jesus, but because from the context and from the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, the meeting was too tense for an introduction. Just as Jesus steps off the boat onto the land, this man meets him immediately. No, uh, it was too tense. In fact, the other gospel and gospel of Matthew says that there were two demoniacs. Luke's account focuses probably on the ringleader of the two. And it says uh, not only that, but it was intense. No one can pass by these fellows. Uh, they, they would regularly turn people away because of their power uh, that was given to them by the demons who possessed them. The meeting was too tense for an introduction, and the meeting took place too soon for an introduction. Now, don't miss this in verse 28. Will you look down at the text, please? Seeing Jesus. 
He cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, it's, we're a little bit earlier, uh, early in the year, aren't we? But around Christmas time, we start thinking about the name Jesus, right? When we go over the Christmas narrative, Mary, Joseph, you're going to bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save Sozo. The same word translates deliver. He will save or deliver his people from their sins. Uh, Jesus is the New Testament equivalent to Joshua in the Old Testament. Yahashua, Yahweh saves, Yahweh delivers. So don't miss this, this play on words. The man needing deliverance is speaking to Yahweh delivers. He's talking to the right person. The man who is desperately in need of deliverance is speaking to the great deliverer, but from the tone of the context, he doesn't seem happy to see him. It's like that way today, isn't it? People in need of deliverance are seldom happy to be introduced to the deliverer. They fight, they kick. I don't know about you, I wasn't saved the first time I heard the gospel. Uh, In God's sovereignty, uh, God proved that there's only one sovereign in this universe, and it's not me. It's him. You see, the man in need of deliverance is not seeking Jesus' deliverance, kind of like many uh, unbelievers today who are just obliviously going throughout the world, not realizing, recognizing their need of deliverance. They're not seeking Christ. They're not seeking salvation. This is a, a great a scripture that will testify Jesus came to deliver this man, though this man didn't seek Jesus. This thought alone, that Jesus is the seeking Savior. He is the one who left heaven to come to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. He is the initiator of salvation. This thought alone is worthy of your unrushed meditation long after this sermon is over. Jesus came looking for this man. The deliverer sought those who needed deliverance. And this is another example of the love, grace, and mercy of our Savior seeking out the sinner who was fast bound in sin and nature's night, as Wesley said. The point here is this. No introductions were possible. No introductions were necessary. But the man still knew Jesus' name. I, I think that proves, contributes to the fact that he needs a deliverer. But not only without an introduction did the man know Jesus' name, without an explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Now don't miss this. Because a true understanding of who Jesus is does not alone save you. That's not heretical. You need to just pause and, and, and hear this. Because I dare say that in this church, as well as in many churches throughout the United States, particularly those who are well taught in the scriptures like you have been here, is that there's a thought that if we know the data of the gospel, who Jesus is, then we must be a Christian. I I memorized those verses. You don't know how many verses of scripture I memorized as a young person, but was still unconverted, still lost in my sin. Do you see that the demon knows who Jesus is, his true identity. He knows the data about Jesus. 
The man is not saved. He's not, these demons are not saved. Not only, not only that, but if you just say that you believe the data of the gospel, even if you assent that the data about Christ, sin, salvation, your need for forgiveness is true, or that there's a coming judgment like this demon knows about, that still doesn't mean that you're saved. It still doesn't mean that you've been forgiven for your sins. You see, the scripture says it this way, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because those who come to God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, you can know the data of the gospel. You can assent that the data of the gospel is true and still split hell wide open. Why? Because you have not rested and trusted entirely in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That word alone is so important. Unless you have all three of those components... As R.C. Sproul once said, the notitia, the ascensus, and fiducia, fiducia, faith, you're not yet saved. I think this is an important point to know because many of you would say, I know the data and I believe it's true, but you're still trusting in yourself. Church attendance, money in the offering plate, and so forth. I want to disabuse you of that. I don't want you to be part of the Matthew 7 crowd on that great day of judgment, who will say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done these things? And the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, James 2.19 says, the demons believe, but yet it goes on to add, they even shudder. There is a kind of belief that doesn't save a person. It only damns them to hell. And there's a kind of faith or belief that saves a person. One preacher commenting on James 2.19 rightly said, quote, if you think you're saved only because you believe correct things about Jesus, all that does is qualify you to be a demon. Close quote. Demons know who Jesus is, but only saved human beings put their entire faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Will you notice that not only uh, without explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity. But thirdly and finally, without hesitation, the man knew Jesus' power. Do you see this? I beg you, in verse 28, I beg you, do not torment me. Now let's unpack this a little bit because it's here that we skip over narratives like this so quickly. These details, I beg you, indicates to me that the man knew Jesus' power. De- oh my, to, to beg or to ask, it's used in Scripture in places where desperation is in view, like Luke 5, 12, where the man full of leprosy begs Jesus to heal him. And it's used, this word beg, is used of other desperate human beings throughout the Scripture. It's, it's used in verse 31, they beg him. Another, another word, to make a strong request or implore Verse 32, they beg him. This is, this is prayer language in most contexts. Certainly the demon is not praying to God as we would as followers of the Lord Jesus pray to him. But he is begging him. He is imploring him. But notice, not just begging indicates they knew Jesus' power, but do you see this word that, do not torment me? Have you come to torment me? The, the Gospel of Matthew will say, have you come to torment me before the time? Torment means to subject to severe distress, to subject to punitive judicial procedure. It's used to describe a boat 
on the Sea of Galilee or a boat. Remember the previous context, verses 22 to 25, where the boat is storm-tossed by the sea and battered by the sea. It's used to describe a boat, this word torment, that's battered and bruised and does not give rest. Matthew 8, 29 says, have you come to torment us before the time? You see, they have, demons have an accurate eschatology. In, in the United Kingdom, we don't talk about last things in eschatology very much. Oh, because that's so divisive. And I understand that it can be, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> you know, what's interesting to me uh, about what this demon says is that he knows that there is a coming day, a future judgment for, for him and his kind. Why is it as human beings that we say, oh, no, no, God is a loving God. He's going to let us into heaven. That, that, that terrible day that you talk about in the future. Oh, come on. I mean, this demon knows there's coming a future judgment for him. And my dear lost friend, the Bible says it is appointed under a person once to die. And after this, the judgment in Hebrews 9, 27. You will stand before God and give an account of your life. There is a coming a day of reckoning for you. If you die in your sins, you will face the, the fury and the power of God's pure, unadulterated wrath poured out on you. Well, you say, well, my God's not like that. Well, then you've just practiced idolatry because you've created a God of your own imagination. And the Bible says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He's unlike you. He's unlike me. He's, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is more holy than you give him credit for being. And you are less holy than you've given yourself credit for being. But isn't this a, a terrible thought? Jesus, do not torment me. <laughs> we normally don't put Jesus' name in a sentence with tormenting, do we? At least not frequently. The idea of Jesus tormenting anyone, including a demon, is countercultural to our biblically ignorant world. Jesus is often portrayed today, is he not, as a soft, effeminate man who never stepped on an ant. For some people, Jesus will only ever be the meek and gentle flannel graph Jesus they learned about in their childhood. Yet if you read Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, I believe that gives us a more up-to-date picture of who Jesus is. He is no longer the suffering servant. He is no longer on the cross. He is no longer being spit on. He is no longer being mocked by soldiers. He is, according to Revelation 1, 12 to 18, the glorious Christ. He is the one before John, before whom John falls at his feet as a dead man. And it's only when Jesus, with grace and mercy, touches John's shoulders who said, Behold, I am he who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is the glorious Christ whose eyes are that of fire, feet burnished bronze, who walks among the candlesticks, who's not some absentee Lord leaving the building of the church to ourselves and our own uh, in our own imaginations. No, He is Lord over the church, His people. He is the glorious Christ. John 5.22, Jesus said, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Hear that, people. Jesus, the one who died on the cross for the sins of all who would place their faith and trust in Him, is the one who's going to be the judge on the great day of judgment. 
The same one who died to make atonement is going to be the one who renders judgment for those who rejected him, those who have maintained, who, those who have suppressed the knowledge of the truth and the gospel. Revelation 14, 9 through 11 tells us that those who have received the mark of the beast shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angel. And listen, and in the presence of the lamb. Who's overseeing their torment? Who's overseeing their punishment in Revelation 14? Who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? It's Jesus Christ. He's not your flannel graft, Jesus. The demons know they will face Jesus on the judgment. And my dear lost friend, so will you. So will you. And I beg you, like the Apostle Paul, be reconciled to him today. You're not here by chance. I haven't been brought halfway around the world by chance. You've come. Today is a day of grace and salvation if you'll look to Christ and alone and look to Him alone for your salvation. And don't miss the irony here. When the, when the demons say, have you come to torment us? Please don't torment us. I beg you, don't torment me. Don't miss the irony here because Really, the demon is begging Jesus not to do to him what he's been doing to this poor, miserable wretch of a man. You see the irony there? Don't miss it. And remember Luke's expression of time? For a long time. For a long time. He asks Jesus to give him a grace that he's not willing to give to the man he's tormented. You see down in verse 30, Jesus asks the question, what is your name? What is your name? And he says, legion. Now, in the time of Caesar Augustus, a legion was the name given to a group of 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now I know what you're going to ask me. Is a Roman legion... The same as a demonic legion? I don't know. <laughs> Pastor Allen, what's your take on that? Um, and really, it doesn't matter. Let's just say for argument's sake that it's half of a Roman legion. 3,000 instead of six. The big question that we need to ask is, why does Jesus ask the question? Right? I mean, if Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, God the Son, and God knows everything, is He asking this question because He doesn't know some fact? No, Jesus asked this question because two worlds are on the verge of colliding. Jesus is about to pull back the veil of the physical world to show His disciples, and I contend to show you and me, what is actually happening in the spiritual world. You see, in 2 Kings 6, 14 through 17 is probably the best biblical analogy I can give to help you understand this passage as I think God intends it to be understood. In 2 Kings 6, 14 and 17, we don't have time to turn there, but you can write it down and look later. The king of Syria is being thwarted constantly by Elisha warning the king of Israel, don't go here and don't go there because the Syrians will be waiting for you. And the king of Syria says to his own friends, his own troops, he says, can anyone tell me why we're unsuccessful in getting the king of Israel? Who is really for the king of Israel among us? And one of his, uh, one of his helpers says, 
uh, 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 king, you know that whatever you speak in the inner chamber of your house, Elijah, Elisha knows about it. And so the king says, we need to get this Elisha. We need to sort this guy out. And so the king of Syria tracks down Elisha to the city of Dothan where Elisha and his servant are. And early in the morning, Elisha's servant gets up and he sees the whole city of Dothan surrounded by Syrian horses and chariots and a great Syrian army. And <laughs> Elisha's servant begins to shake and he wakes up Elisha and he says, uh, uh, Master, you better come take a look at this. The city's surrounded. You see the army. Do you see the chariots? Do you see the horses? Elisha says to his troubled servant, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What I'm trying to say is there was a similarity of events. One man was looking at the physical world as he saw it through his physical eyes. But he needed God's help in order to see the world as it really was. He couldn't see what Elisha was saying until Elisha prayed for him. And Elisha does pray, it says in the text. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And my friends, they weren't Syrians. They were angelic, but they were real. Jesus asks the question in verse 30 so that we might clearly see what Jesus clearly sees. Two worlds colliding. The spiritual world and the physical world. And you know, two worlds are still colliding every time the deliverer delivers. When someone repents of their sins and savingly believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not just an external physical thing that's happening there. You see, because salvation is not an intellectual problem, is it? Salvation is a spiritual problem. And it requires, it requires the deliverers. Or, as we might say, having eyes to see, they don't see. Lord, deliver your people from this kind of blindness. And what is it that the Lord wants his disciples to see who are with him? What is it that he wants you to see and me to see? He wants us to see that it's not one man versus one man. Because up till now, as a straightforward reading of Luke 8, you're thinking, here's Jesus and here's a man possessed. And that's not why he asks the question. What he does is he does it so that we might get a, an accurate picture of what's happening there. It's not mano y mano, one versus one. It's one versus 3,000 or 6,000. But yet, even with those numbers, it's not a fair fight, is it? <laughs> greater numbers do not always mean greater power. And this man in whom the demons, uh, 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 who was possessed by the demons, was in the presence of a greater power. He was in the presence of the creator of the ends of the earth. And what does a weaker army do when it sent, sees that it's vastly uh, outmatched by its opponent? Well, it sues for peace. And that's exactly what happens here in our passage. The demon the demons, who though they be thousands in number, 
were vastly outmatched in power by the Lord Jesus. Now, I, the typical response to this sermon, which I have been preaching throughout our short furlough time in the States, is, is that many unbelievers will say, hey, well, I'm not like this man who's possessed by demons. I've never been demon-possessed. Well, that, that may be true. And, and, and for believers, the, the danger for many of you who know and love Jesus Christ is, is to see that you are completely unlike this man. You have, there's no similarities between you and him whatsoever, like perhaps I thought when I first started studying this. Now, again, I just repeat, this passage is not about you and about me. It's about the Lord's demonstration of his power over the forces of darkness, but it certainly has something to do with you by application. So I want you to ask this question with me. How are all unbelievers like this demon-possessed man? And I don't mean, is every unbeliever demon-possessed? No. Believer, were you demon-possessed before the Lord saved you? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say is, we're, we're a lot more like this possessed man in our unregenerate state, in our unsaved state, than we'd like to imagine. I mean, doesn't Romans 6 say that all are enslaved to sin? Uh, that that before, we were, before we were saved uh, by the grace of God, we were, we were slaves to sin. No one was free. None of us are free. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Certainly this man was a slave, wasn't he? Second Timothy or 2 Timothy 2.26 tells us that all are held captive by Satan to do his will. And that, 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 that not just describes this demon-possessed man, but that's talking about every unregenerate person in the language of the Apostle Paul. All are held captive by Satan to do his will. That, des- that describes you before the Lord saved you and before the Lord saved me. We're like this man in that before we were saved, we were held within the domain of darkness. Well, Colossians 1.13 says that the Father has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Certainly, this demon-possessed man is in the realm of darkness, the sphere and influence and power of darkness, like we were before the Lord saved us. And listen, all are Satan's offspring or children of the devil before salvation. Genesis 3.15 speaks about Satan's seed or offspring, the spawn of Satan. That's pretty scary. John 8.44, Jesus will say to them, you are of your father, the devil. Ephesians 5.8, Paul will put it this way, you once were darkness, but now you are children of light. I started preaching this text without thinking about any of those similarities, but it does make a difference. You need to think more biblically. You need to think God's thoughts after him about yourself. And only when you think God's thoughts after him can you really see yourself as God really sees you. It will prevent you from thinking more highly of yourself than, you, than we often do. We are, more, we are a lot more like this man than we at first realize. And you know, Jesus 
is teaching us that not only has, does he have the power over nature and over the forces of darkness, but I think what he's trying to say is that he is the deliverer. And he does for this man what no one else has been able to do. And he still delivers. Humanity needs, humanity today needs deliverance that only Jesus brings. You may not be a demon, you may not be demon possessed, but without Christ's salvation, without his deliverance, the clang, clang of that ball and chain of your sin remind you that you are a slave to sin and that you need to be set free by the deliverance or the salvation that only Christ can bring. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. There's a second lesson to learn about deliverance, and I I know that if Pastor Steve Lawson were here, he would say, Tom, you have a big porch and a small house. That means you have a long introduction and a short sermon. So don't worry, the second point is not as long as the first one. Not only is, is there a need for deliverance, but the second lesson we learn about deliverance is that there is a response to Jesus' deliverance. In fact, there are three responses. In verse 34, we see the response of the herdsmen. They, there's two descriptions given to the herdsmen in their response. First of all, they run away. <laughs> They're running to seek safety in flight, as the lexicon describes the, the word run away. To, to come to a safe place, eluding danger, seeking to avoid it. And and not only did they run away, but secondly, they told it to make something known publicly. Verses 27 and 39, they they make it known in the city. This is where, by the way, the man grew up. He's from the city. His family's in the city. These herdsmen have come back to the city, and they make it known in the city. What happened to this man, their family member, what happened to him? And they, they go out and tell it in the country as well. But not only do the herdsmen have a response, but the people of the city have a response to Jesus' deliverance of this uh, formerly possessed man. And the people of the city in verse 35 through 37, they go out to see what happened. They were curious, first of all. Notice verse 7, 37. They asked Jesus to depart. The other gospels record them making this request. Jesus, please go away. I mean, even Piper says about this verse, Oh my goodness! The great liberator has come and they tell him to get out in this Piper-esque way. He goes on to say, to our utter amazement, they beg Jesus, the life giver, the devil defeater, the hope maker, the hope giver to leave their region, close quote. Can you imagine? These people come out from the city and a verifiable miracle has been performed. They have not been able to deliver this man for a long time. And and rather than rejoicing at this man's deliverance, they say, please leave. Please go away, Jesus. This is the typical response of an unbeliever who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. But there's a reason why they tell him to go away. Verse 35 tells us. Only Luke's account tells us the reason for their request. For they were seized with great fear. Great fear. You all know, everyone knows at least two Greek words, right? And here are your two Greek words. Megaphobia. They were seized with megaphobia. Great fear. There's two kinds of fear, my friend. There's the fear of terror and the fear of reverence. 
Everyone who's believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We reverence him. But that's not the kind of fear they're, distra- they're demonstrating. It's the fear of horror and terror. Just like the fear of the demons, so the fear of the city people. But then there's the third response of the man who was delivered. And this is real, I hope, believer, that you'll be encouraged. But Lord, more than just encouraged, that the Lord might stir you up this morning. The man, there's the response of the man who was delivered. Do you, see, do you notice his location in verse 35? He's, his location is he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is a great position to be in for every true disciple of Jesus. In fact, the disciples, as you read through the Gospels, are regularly, constantly sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is the place where mathetes, where the disciples, the learners, find themselves. The learners, the followers of Jesus. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's his location. Do you see his condition? There's two changes to his condition. First, there's a change to his, there's an external change. He's clothed. In verse 27, he's previously unclothed. Now, notice the second change. There's an internal change. It says that he's in his right mind. He's clothed and in his right mind. I dare say in advance to you that if he hadn't been changed internally, his heart hadn't been changed, there would be no outside change. But you see, a lot of people trapped in religion are concerned about the outside, how long your hair is, what you wear, and so forth. It's called legalism. But... But the Lord is concerned about the inside, the heart of a person. Are there outside changes? Yes, there are outside changes. But we are not interested in behavior modification. We're interested in a transformed life. And a gospel that does not transform your mind, your thoughts, your affections, your desires, is a gospel that doesn't save. It no doubt will lead to internal and external changes. But notice thirdly, Do you notice the man's petition in verse 38? He begged that he might be with Jesus. Now that's a complete contrast to the man from the beginning of the narrative. What have we to do with you, Jesus? He didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And now he doesn't want Jesus to leave him. He doesn't want to be separated or parted from Jesus. What a contrast. And what a contrast between this man who always wants to be with Jesus and the townspeople and the herdsmen who want Jesus to leave and go away and never be seen by them again. You see, before you knew and loved Christ, you didn't want anything to do with Jesus. You know, those sermons were so terribly long and terribly boring. So dull, dull, dull. Get nothing out of your sermon, nothing out of the preaching. Why uh, Why do we have to go and listen to this dribble? Ah, but then the amazing grace of God comes in, doesn't it? And the Holy Spirit brings you alive, regenerates you, helps you see that you are a sinner lost and in sin's grip, and all of a sudden you are alive. You, you begin to understand. You can't get enough of the Word of God. You can't get enough of the person and work of Jesus Christ because there's been a tremendous transformation before you came to know the Lord and after you came to know the Lord. And notice his declaration, the deity of Christ in verse 39. Jesus says, declare how much God has done for you. By the way, I need to say you weren't left behind. If you've been saved, you weren't left behind. You've been sent. There's a difference, right? And Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. 
You've not been left behind. You've been sent like this man. Go declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city. How did he interpret Jesus's words? How much God has done for you? What does he think about Jesus? And he went declaring throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The word proclaiming here is keruso. It's the word preaching. And how much refers to the details. He wasn't just talking about Jesus in general. He was talking about how Jesus delivered him specifically. The narrative is about Jesus' power over the forces of darkness. But Columbia, Maryland is just as in bondage to sin as this man was in bondage to those legions of demons. And only Jesus can deliver. Only Jesus can save. I believe that there's still a need all over Columbia, Maryland, and this world for the deliverance that only Jesus can bring. Now, if you're a true believer, what ought to be your response to the saving deliverance that Jesus has brought to you through the gospel as you leave the house of God today? Well, can I offer you some, some suggestions before we come around the Lord's table and break bread? I contend that this delivered man's response ought to be your response. You ought to be sitting at the feet of Jesus as your regular posture. It's a place of learning, love, and worship. Secondly, your life needs to demonstrate a radical change in those two primary areas of your life, the internal change of your affections, your loves, your desires, and the external change of obeying Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And thirdly, your heart's desire is to be where Jesus is. You want to be with the Lord who lovingly, graciously, mercifully delivered you. This is not simply longing for heaven, my friends, and the streets of gold after life lived for selfish pleasures. This is individual people who have been recognized the pit from which they've been delivered, the fire from which they were brands pulled from the fire. This is them longing to be with their loving Savior. Paul says it, for me to live is, is Christ. And, and he'll go on to say, to die is gain. Or as one professor at Master Seminary used to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is it's gain because it means more Christ. More Christ. I, fourthly, your deliverance, can I say it this simply, ought to result in evangelism. That would be the easiest part to skip over. Now, like prayer, do we ever evangelize enough? You know, if you really want to beat somebody up, just say, are you praying enough? You know, are you sharing the gospel enough? But you know, a lot of people judge their spiritual maturity by how much doctrine they know, how many degrees are after their name or how many certificates or classes they've attended. As a missionary for 20 years in the United Kingdom, I really think that one of the greatest uh, marks of a person who is being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ is whether or not they look on the lost like Jesus does. Why is it that we can say that we're spiritually mature, but we share the gospel far less than we ever did? You're not like Jesus. Because Jesus came all the way from heaven to earth to point people to himself. And the more you're like Jesus, the more you'll begin to see the terrible, desperate situation everyone is really in who doesn't yet know Christ. And the more compassion you will have on them, like our compassionate Savior. You won't keep your mouth silent. You will tell them so that Jesus will save them. So the townspeople, 
And the people of the city beg Jesus to depart. And you know the sad part is? Jesus does depart. (laughs) But you know what the good part is? Not before leaving one witness. Not before sending one witness to reach that town or that city. You're that one witness if you know and love Christ to Columbia and to the to help us bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word today. Thank you for your son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who having loved them, of his disciples, loved them to the end. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came from heaven to earth, not just to show us the way, but to be the Lamb of God who will take away our sins and the sins of the world, the sins of all who will believe from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And Lord, what I pray for Hope Bible Church today, I pray that you would save, Lord, many more as a result of the biblical ministries taking place here. Those who have gathered in today who are not yet yours, would today be the day of their deliverance, the day of their salvation Help them to see themselves as you really see them, as they really are. And Lord, for those members here who have been delivered, some for many years, help them to be reminded that they've not just been saved to miss hell. They've been sent by you to make your name great among their family first and then the nation. Would you help us to that end? Seek to honor and glorify you. And as we come to remember what you have done, Lord Jesus, get glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.